we are considering matters of conscience and the subset of that stumbling blocks. Now, some of you this morning may wonder why we are going to give as much time as we will to this subject this morning. Uh, By the way, I knew there were a couple of things on my heart, and my error uh, bumped me off. We want to remember earnestly in prayer Bill Atkinson. I hope that you have read the emails. I know you get a lot of them, and we never lack for prayer requests. But uh, uh, Bill was in a very serious, serious uh, collision with a Uh, an excavator. I'm not sure I know what that machine is, but I know that it broke every bone in his face. And that's a very serious injury. Uh, The doctors are having um, uh, many discussions about uh, how to feed him and how to keep his air passage open uh, because of all the damage, all the broken bones. So he's, he's in a very serious condition. I got a, a very sweet text this morning that uh, he's uh, awake, he's alert. We thank the Lord that amazingly, with an injury like that, his vision has not been injured. His sight is fine. And uh, he had to write anything that he wanted to say, but he was uh, characteristically writing scripture, and encouraging those who had come to encourage him. So we praise and thank God for him. And uh, we want to pray earnestly for him and for his family in these days ahead. This is not something he'll be over in a week. So this will, yeah, he, he begins, as I understand, I, I, I know that this kind of thing changes in the hospital on a regular basis, but uh, if the initial reports uh, uh, remain, then he will start undergoing reconstructive surgery tomorrow. And uh, that's to have every bone in your, your face broken is going to be serious reconstruction. So let's keep our brother in prayer. That said, we return to the idea of conscience and the issue of stumbling blocks. The reason for slowing down just a little bit and and spending more time in this passage, which of course is about stumbling blocks, is the fact that the entire chapter talks about the relations of God's people with each other in the church. This is often a very misunderstood chapter, and uh, when it's not ignored, it's very often misapplied. And while it is not my purpose to do a long series on uh, church discipline, uh, it is my purpose um, to attempt to help you see why that's important in this matter. Why is it important when it comes to stumbling blocks? Because God has told us how to deal with sin in his congregation. And one of the sins against God's people One of the most serious sins is stumbling them. So I trust we'll see that with greater clarity as we move through the passage. 
So having said that, if you would please stand with me. We're going to read chapter 18. Beginning in verse 1, we'll read through verse 20. Brethren, this is God's word. Let's hear it. Let's give our souls attention to it. Verse 1. At the, time, at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them. And said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones, and the word offend there is the Greek word for stumbling. It doesn't mean doing something that they don't like. This means giving them occasion, stumbling them into sin. <clears throat> Whosoever or whoso shall offend Stumble, one of these little ones which believe in me. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that stumbling others come. But woe to that man by whom the stumbling comes. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend or are the occasion of causing you to stumble, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than have two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. He brings up hell the second time. He doesn't slap on the wrist. He doesn't say, oh, can't we all just get along? He says, you need to beware of this. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. That means believers. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which is lost. How think ye? If a man have a hundred sheep 
and one of them be gone astray, that they not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him. Very important word. Alone. Alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye, that means the church, it's plural, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Amen. Amen. This is God's holy and life-giving word. May he bless it to our souls. And let's pray. And now, O oh Father, we come to thee. We come to thee. Shine the light of Christ in our hearts. Please come, O Holy Spirit. This is thy temple. Stir up the heart of every one of thy people here this morning. Stir up the hearts of the lost to see their need of Christ. And for those who see their need, O God, may they wonderfully rest their souls, their sin, and their ever lasting life there upon Jesus Christ. My Father, we need Thee. Come and be in our midst today. Bless and encourage, strengthen and build up Thy people and give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to His church, Thy church. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who became a man. He came into this world to save sinners, to save his people 
from their sins. He died on Calvary's cross. And he rose again the third day to secure the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. He did that for every sinner that repents of sin and believes on him. But, this is a very big connecting word. But, the story of God's eternal purpose of salvation does not end when a sinner repents and believes. One of the great tragedies to me as a pastor is to see parents hope and hope and hope and hope that the Lord will save one of their children. The children make a profession of faith and then the parents act as though it's all over. They're going to heaven uh, let's move on. That's deadly to that child's soul. We're hoping that every child that professes Christ is truly converted. We don't sit down and say, well, now let's take out our suspicion meter. We don't do that. But at the same time, the word of God never stops at someone repenting of sin and believing on Christ, that's the beginning of the journey to the celestial city. It is a journey. It is a war. It is a serious and intense battle until we reach the heavenly shore. Everybody in your house needs to know that. Stop and think with me for a moment. Those of you that are believers and have read and understood the miracle of salvation. In the miracle, the supernatural work called the new birth, Christ gives his people the Holy Spirit and a new heart. That miracle makes them, number one, new creatures. Number two, members of Christ's body, the church. And number three, citizens of God's kingdom. That means they have a king. They have a Lord. Someone to whom they must give absolute allegiance. By the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit then, believers are forever united to Jesus. And here's another but. <laughs> but that's not the only person in the picture that you're related to. They are forever united to Jesus and to one another. Forever. Forever. Beginning now, if you are born of God's Spirit, 
You can't pick or choose who you're going to love. God has already told you whom to love. And that's his people. He loves them. And so should you. I repeat, the church is a body united to Christ and to one another. Supernaturally, it's really supernatural. It is a powerful thing that God does. He transforms a heart by the creative power of the Holy Spirit and makes a new creature. But there's something about that new creature that we often forget. Filled with the Holy Spirit, every one of God's born-again people are connected forever. That even means people in the congregation you've got some problems with. You are connected to them, really, whether you ever say a word to them or not whether you ever have them over for dinner or not, the Spirit of God dwells within you. And them too, if they're God's people. Now that's a very important thing to always bear in mind. Therefore, how we live, how we live testifies ceaselessly to two things how we live testifies broadcasts something and there are at least two of them the first one is this your life testifies of your relationship to Jesus Christ Number two, your life testifies to your relationship with his people. That's why the scriptures, the New Testament scriptures so often say one another, one another, one another. You can't love Jesus and keep his people out of the, the picture. You can't. It is impossible. You must love what he loves. And he loves his people. He loved them before the foundation of the world. Now. <clears throat> let me put this another way. Our relationship to Christ is not better than our relationship to his people. And our relationship to his people is not better than our relationship to him. Those are two inseparable things, now and ever. Now, if you believe that, that must shape your life. 
and it must bear testimony to Christ, to your brothers, and to the world. Just in case we missed it, let me just say it one more time. My relationship, your relationship to Christ is not better than our relationship to his people. And our relationship to his people is not better than our relationship to him. Jesus loves the church. And so should you. We live in a day that's very anti-church among professing Christians. Not, not, not the world. We got plenty of antichrist out there against the church. But I'm not talking about antichrist and his minions. I'm talking about his people. Those that profess to be his people. You can't love Jesus and not love what he loves. Now, <clears throat> chapter 18 is the fourth of Christ's five major discourses in Matthew's gospel. This chapter is crucial for New Covenant believers because it deals with daily life and relationships in Christ's churches. <clears throat> we can put this another way. Every church, every true church of Jesus Christ is a covenant community. Believers are in covenant with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Believers, every believer, all believers throughout history are in touch with God, in communion with God, in covenant with God through Jesus Christ. Believers are in covenant then with one another. <clears throat> And we renew that covenant every time we take the Lord's Supper. It's not just about me and Jesus. It's about we and Jesus. It's about us. We are one in Christ. That's what he prayed for. John 17. I and them, them and me. Wait a minute. You mean he's, he's not with the super Christians? He's not with anybody but Christians. If you are truly born of God's spirit, he dwells within you. That's so plain in scripture, it's hard to imagine that we miss it. I think it's a thing called the flesh that gets in our way. <clears throat> Jesus said this cup is the New Testament. It's the New Testament covenant in my blood and then he said it to all of his disciples at the table i'm among those who believe that judas was gone when he gave the lord's supper 
The, the Lord's people always find something that they can disagree over. But I would agree with those who say Judas was gone. And he said to them, this do ye. Ye, plural. As oft as ye drink it, as oft as ye eat it, in remembrance of me. So Jesus, uh, that, that, that means then we, we together are covenanted to the Lord Jesus Christ in God's way. Not our own. We didn't think it up. God saves us, brings us into the body of Christ. And in that Christ, uh, in Christ, we are a covenant, spirit-united body that's supposed to work together. I mean, if you have ever watched I'm Among the Blessed, you know, I live right where the Blue Angels fly over my house regularly. And when they're out practicing, thankfully nobody's seen me at this yet. But when I'm in the house studying on a Wednesday or Thursday while they're going through all of their workout, if I hear them coming, I run out of the house like a child and I jump off the porch so I can see them because they're gone fast. I want to see them. And when they come, it's astounding that those machines moving that fast, they are so powerful and they're flying so close together and they fly in that extraordinary formation. It's just like one. It's almost like there's one pilot controlling all of it. That's the way it ought to be here. One pilot working in the whole formation and moving us in his direction. If lost people can guide big machines... <laughs> And leave you astounded at their ability to fly together. Why can't God's people do that? If we have the Holy Spirit, why can't we fly in formation? There's a problem. We want to deal with it. Remember, Jesus, the head of the church, said, New commandment I give unto you. That you like some of the people... That appeal to you. No he didn't say that. Well you know they're like in my, my group of people. The kind of people I like. Mm. <clears throat> Let me say with, with, without force. But with I trust biblical acuity. So what? Jesus does not care. Whether they fit in your camp or not. He has put you and squeezed you together as the book of Colossians for all of us to hold on to the head. Him. A new command I give unto you. Commandment. That ye love one another as I have loved you. That ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. If ye have loved one to another. Now I'm not saying. And for those of you who are. Sitting there thinking. He's getting too ecumenical sounding. 
There are certain things and certain doctrines that do define the people of God. I'm certainly not saying that anybody that just pops up and says, I'm a Christian, is one. And that we have to abide and certainly not to bow necessarily to things they believe. I'm not saying that. So please don't misunderstand. What I am saying is that God gives his people a new heart. He gives them a new spirit and then he gives them his word. He even structures his churches so that his people will grow and be more like what we just sang. I long to be like Jesus. That's the whole purpose. And causing someone to sin or hindering someone in their walk with the Lord is the opposite of the love to which Christ calls us. It violates the commandment of Christ and injures, injures his body. So the title of our message is Stumbling Your Congregation. This is part two. May the power, and I mean this with all my heart, may the power and presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be evident in our gathering today. May the Holy Spirit shed abroad the love of God in our hearts. And may our love for Christ and his people burn hotter than ever before. We've had one main heading for a couple of months now, maybe longer than that, perhaps several decades. In what ways can we stumble others? In what ways can we stumble others? We've learned uh, from Scripture that we can stumble others in our family. And then we began last week, we can stumble others in our congregation. We made it through the first heading, which was we must grasp the seriousness of the offense of stumbling Christ's congregation. If we take lightly what Jesus makes so serious, it's almost a guarantee that we're going to violate it. As we return to this passage, let us now condense verses 1 through 14 of this chapter. Verses 1 through 6 reveal that the disciples asked Jesus who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus taught them that to be the greatest in the kingdom, one must be converted and become as a little child. That means... They must humble themselves and become utterly dependent upon their Heavenly Father. As much as you depend on yourself, you rob God. He wants us to cast ourselves entirely upon Him. Now, we're to walk as mature Christians. There are certain things that we learn and grow in, but it must always be with the thought. Whatever we think we know, we don't know it as we ought. So we need to walk with humility and care and a holy caution for the love of our brothers and sisters. Jesus then said that to stumble one of his little children, 
his. Oh, what an important possessive pronoun. His little children. I mean, I I look at you this morning, I I can't tell you the joy it gives my heart to see you. But you're not mine. You're Christ. That's why I have to be cautious. As is obvious from today, I can err. Even when I'm not trying to. Jesus said that to stumble one of his little children is a sin so outrageously wicked that it deserves drowning in the depths of the sea. I can tell you with some assurance that most of us in the flesh do not believe that. We're not cautious. We're not concerned. We're not really bothered by what we say you think. You know what all of us grew up with? Is the devilish notion. Well, you see what you get. That's it, man. That's just the way I am. Uh, well, if God saved you, it's not the way God wants you to stay. He wants you to be like Christ. Not your old home life. Not the home life you're building now, but Looking toward and realizing Jesus Christ is the model. I'm not there yet. I need to go toward him. I want to be like Jesus, the father's holy child. Meek, loving, lowly, mild. But he could also thunder. And he did. In verses 7 through 9, Jesus pronounced woes upon those who give occasion to others to sin. He solemnly warned that if hands, feet, and eyes became, or eyes, became the occasion for sin, it is better to be rid of them than for God to cast you into hell. Why is he bringing up hell with his people? Why does Jesus say, you must be converted? Why does he say that in this? Modern religion says, did you make that decision? You're going to heaven no matter what. Jesus never said that. Not that way. We believe in the doctrine called the perseverance of the saints for a reason. God's people go on and they keep going on. Even if they fall on their faces, they get up a, a thousand times, more than that. So why is Jesus bringing up? I mean, we, we truly do believe that someone who is genuinely converted, is converted, will be, and never will be anything other than God's child. So why is Jesus saying to his hand-picked disciples, why is he talking about this stuff? Because to stumble God's people is to do Satan's work, not Christ's. And if someone were to persist in it without repenting, it would ultimately show that they're not his people. Are you hearing that? Jesus is warning those that he knew before the foundation of the world were going to make it to the end. But he doesn't pat them on the head and say, "Eh, it's okay, you're mine, so don't worry about it. 
They were filled with pride. And they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus takes that as a teaching moment. And he grabs a little child and brings him over and says, let me tell you who the greatest one is. The one who becomes like this little child. Humbles himself. Arrogance is Satan's marketplace. The Lord's people are to humble themselves. It's hard to do when you've read two or three systematic theologies, right? (laughs) You know, I know some stuff now. Well, Jesus even brings up the subject of hell. Why? Because sin is so terrible. And to cause someone else to fall into it is dreadful. It's not okay. And as someone who goes on in a pattern of this is saying, maybe I don't really know Jesus. Can God's people fall? Can Christ's people fall into terrible sin? Oh, they sure can. But the, the scriptures make that plain. But that's why there's such a thing called repentance, mortification, faith always in the blood of Christ. And the more you stay with God's word, the more you begin to see the treasures that are there in those passages you've read so many times. I don't know if this is the case with you. I know I'm probably uh, dating myself. <laughs> I won't explain what that means. I'm, I'm, uh, I've been around a while. When I was younger, and I'm sure it's still got to be out there somewhere. But when I was younger, I used to read a magazine, and I, I would always flip in that magazine to one place. <clears throat> it would be a drawing, and in that drawing, it would say, find 15 rabbits, or something like that. Find a police officer, a fireman, and a tank, you know? And it would be a really nice-looking picture. It didn't look crazy, but you had to look at it. And look at it. And you had to turn it this way. I did. You had to turn it the other way. And eventually you could see it. You'd realize right in the middle of that patina is an airplane or something like that. You would see it. And once you would see it, you would think, why did it take me so long to see it? Brethren, the word of God is greater than that. And you'll take it. And you'll turn it and you'll look and you realize, oh, why didn't I see that? It took me years looking at this passage to understand the connection of things that are here. And once you begin to see the connection, you realize, how did I miss that? <laughs> why, why, didn't I, why didn't I see the, you know, the airplane in the petunia? Why, why didn't I find the rabbit you know, in the woman's hair? Why? Well, the Spirit of God teaches us, makes us patient, makes us stay in school, that we keep studying and looking and asking, and the Lord really does begin to open these things up. Jesus is looking at hand-picked disciples, and he's warning them as he's warning us. 
He's not saying, oh, you can lose your salvation. He's saying, here's what my people do. And here's what my people should refrain from. And to continue in such a thing might prove that you're not really my people. That's sobering, isn't it? It sure is for me. I I was a person made for uh, delete keys and backspace keys and erasers. I err every day. And I wish I could fix it. I can't. But I can repent. I can say, oh, Lord, teach me and help me to get up and go and walk in thy ways. That's the thing. We're not to sit around and moan and beat ourselves to death. 2,000 years of Christian history has shown us that flagellating ourselves does not make people holy. No, we go to the cross to the one who was flagellated for us. We go to him and we say, help me get up. Help me (laughs) to honor thee. But I go next so that we don't walk around moping all the time. But we're delighted to know that when we fail, Christ's blood has cleansed me. It's this idea of causing his people to sin without having a conscience about it. That begins to be problematic. Do we see that? I really hope you see that. In verses 10 through 14, Jesus makes abundantly clear that we should not despise any of his little ones because Jesus came into the world to save that which is lost. Now, it's easy to read that and not drop anchor and think about it. Yeah, Jesus came in to save sinners. Next. No, no. Stop and think, how is that connected to what he's just said? Well, the point that he's making is... Don't stumble, my children. I came to save them from their sins. Don't stumble, my children. I came to seek them. I came to save them. It's not your job to ally with Satan and stumble them. Jesus came to save them from sin. And how dreadful it is then to stumble one of his little ones. One of those that believes on him. You get the picture? The eternal son of God came into this world to save his people from their sins. Not only the penalty, but from its power. And it's pleasure, but ultimately, the day is coming when we will be saved from its presence. Isn't that good? Now, do you hear what he's saying? Look what he's done. I've come into this world to deliver you from this. Don't stumble, my children. You will stumble if you are not humble. It's just that clear in the passage. Here's the little child. Humble yourself like this. Now, thankfully, (laughs) in verses 12 through 14, uh, uh, in verses 12 through 
through 14, we see that Jesus so loves his people. If all this has been intense to you for the moment, I pray that this will be a wonderful oasis. Jesus so loves his people that if one of a hundred goes astray, he is like the man that leaves the ninety and nine, goes into the mountains and finds that stray. He doesn't just warn us of stumbling. He also shows us that he's a great and glorious retriever. He's a deliverer. He's a seeker. He's a good shepherd. He's not going to let his sheep wander away. But we can. We start to stray, and he comes out to find us. Praise the Lord. That's one of those things you need to just tuck away into your, into your heart. And then remember, when you get up tomorrow, Lord, grant me the grace not to dis to dishonor thee. But in those moments, if I become aware that I have, come get me. <laughs> come draw me to thyself. Come find me in the mountains if I've wandered off some way. And he does. He does. This is wonderful. So, uh -uh. He is like the man that, that, that finds the straying sheep and then he rejoices when he finds it. He doesn't beat the wool off of him. He rejoices that he's found his straying one. Well, all this feeds directly into the next heading, which is we must recognize and affirm the necessity and righteousness of discipline. Everything that's come before it feeds right into this. All that we've just talked about feeds into this about church discipline. I'll give you a caution, especially for those of you who love and study the word. Sometimes when you're doing topical studies, which are legitimate, you can get so locked into the topic that all of a sudden the passage stops breathing because you've put the template over it, and very often we can't see through the topic we're studying. But God's word, every word of God is pure. Amen. You know, as you read it, sure, mine out all the stuff about that topic, but don't, real, uh, don't forget there's more there than you've dug out. Look at it carefully. Think about it even more carefully. Look at it, bigger context. Look at the blocks that are around it, and then look. And let it breathe a little more. Right? I've read this about church discipline so many times. I've missed some of the very connections within the chapter. Because I've looked at 15 through 20 without spending as much time in chapter 1 through verse 14. I mean, uh, uh, chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. So here we are. We've got to recognize, and we won't, unless God by the Spirit helps us, help us to recognize and then to affirm. In other words, we need to agree that this is what God is saying and we need to walk in it. And we need to affirm it to one another. Affirm the necessity and the righteousness of discipline. Jesus said, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee 
one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. God is so careful here. Christ is so careful. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. Wow. All of a sudden, the passage kind of explodes with its picture and what it's saying. Listen carefully. To stumble one of God's children affects the whole church. To stumble one affects the whole church. Oh, what? Why do we bring the church into this? Why don't you just keep this quiet? I've been in churches that actually would do that. Tragically, one of the times was when someone got pregnant out of wedlock and they were like, well, you know, we kind of want to keep this hushed. What are you talking about? She's going to have evidence month by month. She's not just gaining weight. No, we don't want to run around all the time thinking that we're some kind of great Christian hero by just exposing people's sin. That's not what this is about. This is about someone who refuses to repent of their sin. So in one sense, it's about any sin that must be repented of and the person refuses. But as we're looking at that overall picture, we have to realize that one of the most serious ones, one that Christ has said, better for you to drown, better for you to gouge out your eye than go to hell. Is that an important sin? Yes, it is. So, if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. And if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. The word moreover is a connecting word. Every word of God is pure, and those little connecting words sometimes are very, very important. Moreover means in addition to. Furthermore, so what does that tell you? Verses 1 through 14 feed right into this. Moreover, it's often translated but or and, depending on whether there's a contrast or not. But moreover connects us. Furthermore, here's more information, Jesus is saying, connects us to his previous warnings about humility about stumbling God's children and despising them. It also connects to Christ's seeking out his straying sheep. It's so sweet in here. Therefore, our Savior meant something like this. I want to add something to the solemn warnings I've just given you about the relationships to my people. If your brother shall trespass against thee. The first thing we should notice is that Jesus says, brother. If your brother. In other words, another believer. If it's your sister in the Lord. Brother or sister. If they sin against you. Every part of Christ's instruction in this chapter relates to our interaction with each other. 
as believers, not our interaction with the world. I will tell you, some of the people sitting right in this room have reproved me more stoutly than I have been in my ministry. And I thank God for them. They've helped me see my blind spots. I can't remember exactly who said it. I think I remember, but I'll not bring up his name in the event that I'm as wrong as I was about the hymns this morning. He said, I know I've got blind spots. I just can't see them. (laughs) And sometimes we need somebody else to help us see them. Because we don't get up in the morning and go, oh, man, I'm likely to really make a mess today. I mean, you know, I've got a lot of issues. And boy, I've got some, well, I'd call them blind spots, but I see them. They just follow me everywhere. I, I know what all my sins are. No, you don't. You don't. And you need someone who loves you to make you see it. And I'm going to tell you what, sometimes that's really painful, awkward, uncomfortable, and healing. It's vital. It's vital. Now, it doesn't mean that we should all say, I'm here to heal you today and rebuke everybody for everything that bothers us. But it does mean that there are times when if we really love somebody, We're going to say something that they're not going to want to hear. But if you love them, and listen, and young people, you need to get this. He loves you the most who tells you the truth with the risk of your friendship and your love. Someone loves you enough to say, you know what? I love your love for me. But you need to see something. And if it costs me your love for me, it's worth it. If you're not thinking in those terms, it's hard for you to think Christianly. Christianity is costly. It will cost you friends. It will cost you family It will cost you (laughs) popularity. But that cost speaks of the fact that we're alive in Christ. We've understood something. I mean, Peter got over being called Satan, didn't he? Well, if your brother sins against you. This is not about an interaction with the world. It's about, with belie- it's about interaction with believers. Christ gave a conditional statement. Now, I, I think we all know, well, some of us may not. A conditional statement is something that we all use. It's just, we, we don't always know it's got a name. A conditional statement is an if-then statement. If this is said or done, Then this follows. That's the idea. If you do this, if you say this, if you, you know, if this chemical affects this chemical, then this is what happens when you put them together. It's it's a very important way of expressing things. 
Parents use it with their children all the time. If, then. Right? So, Jesus uses it right here. If your brother sins against you, then. So, there are three steps. And we're not going to get through all three of them today, which is perfectly okay. Not for the guys who write books about how to preach, but for those of us <laughs> who haven't learned how to preach yet, we just keep going. So step one, go to your brother alone. You can remember that, can't you? Go to your brother alone. Uh, if, if, for some of us, we might have to say go to your sister alone. The first thing that we must do is to have a private meeting, a private Meeting. Now, I said this last week. I'm going to repeat it with maybe a little more intensity than last week. But it's important for us to get. Sin is no little thing. Any sin, every sin, is an infinite evil. To sin against a believer is to touch the apple of God's eye. To injure God's blood-bought property. To do violence to Christ's beloved bride. You can say anything you want about me, but you better not talk about my wife in unloving ways. When we do violence to one of God's people, we're fooling with Christ's bride. To wound one of Christ's sheep. Before, God, uh, before Paul was converted, he violently persecuted Christ's churches. And you know what? Even though the blood of Christ washed that sin away, there were times throughout the rest of his life he remembered that sin. He mentions it in his epistles. You know, nobody said, hey, Paul, don't worry about this. It's under the blood, man. It was under the blood. And he knew he had forgiveness for it. But the thought that he had touched Christ's people haunted him. He'd chase it away with the cross. He would chase it away with the gospel. But so it is with us. Oh, young people, I'm telling you now, you need to guard your step. Because in your youth, you can do and say things you'll never be able to take back. You'll be forgiven if you're a Christian, you repent, but it'll come back. I know this. Why do you think David cries out? Forgive the sins of my youth. Young man, go out and live, says Solomon. But just remember, you'll give account to God for it. That's not to be a killjoy. That's not taking away. It's saying walk cautiously. The risen Lord appeared to Paul, rebuking and warning him, I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. 
Now stop and let that sink in as well. I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. How did Paul persecute Jesus who had ascended into heaven well before that time? Here's the answer. Every person born of God's spirit is in union with Jesus, the risen Lord. When you mistreat or sin against any of God's people, you're touching Christ. You're insulting Christ. You're wounding his bride. Parents, children, did you hear that? Did you hear that? Husbands, wives, did you hear that? When you sin against your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, if they're God's people, if they, if they are Christians, <clears throat> you're touching what is precious to Christ. You're touching him. You're touching what he shed his blood to cleanse. None of us is perfect. We need the blood of Jesus Christ every day. I do. So, the great day of judgment is coming. And Jesus will say to those that he cast into everlasting fire, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not, that is, that did not show mercy, did not show good works, did not go to the sick, did not go to the needy, did not go to the imprisoned, etc., etc. When you did it, when you did not do it to the least of these, my children, you did it not to me. And he will say, the things that you did do, you did it to me. You did it to me. He will bless his people for doing that. Some of the brothers here, during Brother Charles's sickness, his affliction, all of this, they went and nurtured him like nurses. That's glorious to Christ. That's his broken and failing body lying there in the living room. And when out of love for Christ and for his people, we serve them, that'll be remembered. Glory to God. Why? Because Christ dwells in all of his people by the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to sin against Christ alike without sinning directly against Jesus himself. To sin against a believer, a blood-bought, a Christ-purchased, an eternally loved child of God is a wicked thing. It is a dangerous thing. So what is the purpose of a private meeting? We haven't left that idea. All of this works together. Why am I going to somebody and why am I going to them privately? 
Because first of all, nobody else on the planet needs to know what went down between you. Nobody. 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 You go to them, and what do you go to them to do? <laughs> the issue is between you and that person, period. Now, I'm talking about things that happen to people privately, and that's why it's to be kept private. You do not need to go to anybody else's ears, but to the offender's ears, or at least the one you think that's offended. Secondly, what's the other reason for going to them? Why are you going? It's not revenge. It's not thundering condemnation. But the hope of reconciliation. You're going for one reason. Can we get this right? Let's see if we can get this right. That brings glory to Christ because he's reconciled all of his elect to himself. There ought to be something about reconciling, reconciling others to us in our lives. So you don't go in the, in the corner and mope. You don't go and talk to 15 people about how terrible what that is that somebody did to you or what you think of that they did. You go to them quietly out of love for them. And you work that out because you want to be reconciled, not to get your pound of flesh. Now, let me ask you, do you see a, do you see a correlation with what Jesus has said before this verse? Jesus went up into the mountains to reclaim that sheep. When we go to someone who has sinned, we go to restore them. We go to see them brought back. We're going on the same mission that Christ goes on. He said, oh, one of my sheep's out there. All right, 99, hold on. And he goes for that one. We don't need to do anything but go to that one. And try to reconcile. And be willing to say, I'll do this. I'll do that. How can we make this work? Now, if we do that, you know how Jesus puts it? You've won your brother. Amen. That's the point. You've won your brother. I know people that go, oh, church discipline, man, that, that couldn't, man, that couldn't be loving. That co no, we don't believe in any of that because, I mean, Jesus tells us to love everybody. You hate them if you leave them in their sins. If you love them, you go to try to get things worked out. So you don't get one of those grudges like we talked about last week. So let me bring this to an end for this morning. We'll go to the second. We'll go to the second step next time. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. He is that great shepherd of the sheep. When we stray like a, like a heat-seeking missile, he'll come to find us and to restore us. We shouldn't fight that restoring. Sometimes it comes in a brother's rebuke or a sister's reproof. It may come when in the middle of a hundred other things you're trying to deal with, the Lord says, I'm putting my finger on this thing right now that you're, that you're doing. 
Do you know what you sound like? Do you know what you're acting like? Do you know what you're saying to other people when you do this? I don't ever like that finger, by the way. But it's always healing. And when it does, it's like, wow, my conscience is clear. It's all connected. It's all connected. Love your brethren. Love Christ's people. Realize that they're fallible. You're fallible. But it goes beyond the realization. Be ready to do what you need to do. To be reconciled if and when that comes. Private. We don't need to know it. The elders don't need to know it. You don't need to come to the elders until possibly the second step, but primarily the third step. And we'll talk about that next week. Jesus loves his people. Jesus loves his church. And he said, don't cause one of my little ones to stumble. That's how much he loves us. His blood makes the foulest clean. So let us look to him and let us love his people. And let us see the way we need to deal with real biblically defined sin and may God help us as we try to bring him glory in this important work amen I thank thee father for thy goodness thy love is so great it is so big it is so holy it is so pure it is so good father through thy son Thou didst seek us out. Thou didst find us in the mountains. And we thank thee that any time we begin to stray, we can expect you to help us and come for us. And sometimes that's from one of those brothers, one of those sisters. Help us now. Help us to walk in thy truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you'd stand with me, please. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Make you perfect in every good work to do his will. Working in you that which is well pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's go in the name of the Lord Jesus.